Letty and the piano players through the years didn't know how, and therefore we never learned them. Uh, but now that we have it all on tape, we're making an attempt to pick up a few that we still don't know, or some that I might have heard 20 or 30 years ago, but I, I think I was there the first year that that book came out in 1952, just as a child, and uh, been singing out of it ever since, so maybe we'll learn it eventually. Well, I've been reading the Bible about that long, and there's still a lot of stuff in there I need to learn better. So, <laughs> you know, it's a learning process throughout life. Well, for today, I started a series some time back. Uh, actually, I think it was just before the Feast of Tabernacles on uh, our forefathers, because the Scripture is clear that we are to look to our spiritual fathers from the past, and in fact, uh, Paul made a very big point of that in Hebrews 11 by pointing back at the faithfulness and the obedience of many who will be in the first resurrection, called the faith chapter, and it shows the faithfulness of many of God's servants through the years. So we started with Enoch and Noah and are working our way forward. And <coughs> we've come down to Abraham, <coughs> and I started that back in uh, October. And then we had other issues come up that needed to be addressed and talked about in other sermons. So I want to get back to it now. And uh, we had gone through the first part of the life of Abraham where God had told him in Genesis 12 to get up out of where he was living and go. And he made it very clear that he did not know where he was headed, but he did what God told him to do. Uh, he knew of God through... Uh, probably Enoch and others who were long-lived back then, and Abraham had been taught. So when God appeared to him in chapter 12, it says, Get out of your country, get away from your family, go a land to a land I'm going to show you, uh, and there I'll make your name great, and I'll bless you, and everything will work out for you there and that he would even bless them that blessed him and curse them that cursed him. So that's a pretty big favor from God, that he will uh, curse your enemies for you and bless your friends. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we, any of us had that kind of, of blessing conferred on us from Almighty God? I think that's coming, certainly, but he's promised us persecution and trouble and difficulties in this life, and it's only once we are in the kingdom of God, that we're going to have the kind of blessings uh, in the way that Abraham was promised them here. Anyway, he just got up and took off. Uh, I don't want to spend much time here. We've been over it. But just as a uh, brief primer on what we've been through, as a reminder as we go into it, uh, <coughs> he found his way to... Uh, the land of Canaan, the Canaanites were already there, so it was an area that was being reestablished as the promised land, and I believe it was the original promised land where Eden was and that the first cradle of civilization was, and that God took him back to that spot, which is not very far from here as I understand it. Now, he told him when he got there that he was to look north, south, east, and west. 
you might remember that the promised land was fairly small in the beginning. Uh, and God had said, had set the boundaries, and you can go through Ezekiel and through Joshua and see that uh, it was limited. It was only about maybe 100 miles wide by close to 200 miles long. Uh, that's rough figures. I don't remember exactly. I have figured it up. But there are several places in Deuteronomy where, uh, and other places where God said that he would expand it or that he might expand it. And certainly he has. I, I think we're looking at an expanded promised land. Most of Israel now uh, is in northwestern Europe or here in North America. And this is by far the uh, most blessed place on earth is the United States of America. Canada included, but uh, there's no greater land on the earth in terms of resources and water and all of the things that God said would be in the promised land. So, I do believe Abraham walked where we walk, and he's led us here on purpose uh, to a land that has all the things that Deuteronomy 8 said it would have. You go to the Middle East and it doesn't have anything that God said would be contained in the promised land. So we find that Abraham had a relationship with Melchizedek, who was the Christ of the Old Testament, and uh, he tithed to him. And one part of Abraham's character that I think we should examine here is that uh, his nephew Lot was taken captive. Abraham summoned his forces, the people that were with him, and went after his captors, rescued Sodom, I mean uh, Lot, and uh, then Abraham would not take any of the spoils, lest people thought that the blessings he had came from man and not from God. So he put God first in his life very clearly, and he is the father of the faithful. He always put God first. Well, I say always, nearly always. Uh, there were a couple, three times when he uh, equivocated a little bit, uh, but God told him in chapter 15 that he would have children and he would be as the sands of the sea and so on. And he says, yeah, but I don't have any kids. How is this all going to happen? Uh, but in verse 6, he believed in the eternal and he counted it to him for righteousness. So he said, <clears throat> I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to this land to inherit it. But then he goes ahead and tells him that there's going to come a time when There'll be 400 years in captivity in Mitzrayim, or Egypt as we have called it. Uh, but after the fourth generation, they'll come out when the iniquity of the Amorites, uh, while it is not yet full. <clears throat> so he made a covenant, told him he would have that land. Then we come down to 16, and uh, Sarah, his Sarai at that time, his wife bore him no children. Her womb was closed. She was unable to conceive. And uh, Abraham had moved when he was 75 or been given those blessings or those, yeah, those promises from God. And now we find that he's 84 years of age <clears throat> and has still got no uh, son in his household other than just those of servants and slaves. So here he is, 84, and they've been waiting for a child, and it hasn't happened. 
Now, he was 84 and apparently still quite capable of siring a child, because when Sarah told him, well, maybe God intended you to be the father, but Sarah, uh, Hagar is my handmaid, so maybe you should have a child through her. Maybe that's what God meant. You, know, you can begin to have all kinds of ideas over time when you don't get what it is you thought you were going to have. And God has made us a lot of promises here in this end time that we have to wait to be fulfilled, but when are they going to come? And it's easy to lose heart, to lose hope, to get sidetracked or lose focus. But he said those who endure to the end will be saved, not those who give up part way. So they kind of decided to do it their way here, and Abraham went along with it. And uh, Hagar became pregnant, <clears throat> and then she immediately despised Sarah, or Sarai, she still was called. Uh, saying, you know, I'm better than you because I have a child and you don't now. But God intended this. Now, bear in mind, it was not illegal back then to have more than one wife or to have concubines. Uh, so he wasn't illegal. I, I wouldn't say this was well advised necessarily because the history of polygamy and concubinism is that uh, women argue and fight and get jealous, and kids argue and fight and get jealous, and the inheritance is hard to divide up, and uh, it just creates complications. So God intended from the beginning one man and one woman, <clears throat> but because of the hardness of hearts, he allowed some of these things, but all we have to do is examine the story and see that that didn't usually work out too well, and it didn't in this case either. Uh, Ishmael became very, very jealous of Isaac later on because he was uh, he was given blessings that uh, Ishmael simply was not. Anyway, we come down to chapter 17, and the story is interesting here. <clears throat> he was 99 years old when God appeared to him and said to him, I am the Almighty God, Work, walk before me and be you mature or upright or righteous or, or perfect, he says, uh, and I'll make my covenant with you. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, uh, my covenant's with you and you shall be a father of many nations. Now he was 99 years old at this point uh, and still going to be called a father. So I'm going to call you Abraham now, which means high father. Uh, and he is the highest of our forefathers, as far as that's concerned. There, he is the one who, whose uh, children became Israel. So he was high father now, and he would be fruitful, and he would make many nations of him. And kings would come through, through him. So uh, here he gave him in verse 8, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and that he would be their God. So he told him to keep his covenant in verse 9, uh, and he told him to get circumcised, and circumcise not only the child that was born to Hagar, but himself and everybody within his house. Well, that's servants, employees, everybody was to be circumcised. I'm sure this came as welcome news to all the male members of that family. <laughs> a lot of them were probably already old men, some middle-aged, some young men. And uh, I doubt they even understood what circumcision was because it is not something that had ever been established before. 
so Abraham probably had to explain to them what it was that was about to be done. <laughs> and I suspect that there was a lot of chatter about then and how this was not a very good idea. Uh, but what, whatever uh, occurred at that point uh, was overcome, and that very day, everybody in that household was circumcised. Everybody that was a male, anyway. You, know, you almost have to explain that, because now we have the Ishmaelites, or the Arabs, who circumcise women, which is mutilation. It's not the same thing at all, but an awful thing. Anyway, he said, you don't call her Sarai anymore in verse 15, but Sarah will be her name. That means princess. Verse 16, and I will bless her and give you a son also of her. Yes, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his, he didn't say it out loud, but said in his heart, Shall a child be born to him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? Now he laughed, and there was no censorship or censure here of, of him laughing, as it was a little later, as we'll see with Sarah. Um, there are different types of laughter, and I don't know how much bearing that has on this. It may have just kind of struck him funny. <laughs> where she was way past menopause and Viagra wouldn't have helped him in the least. Uh, it was, they were done. It was over. And yet God says you're going to have children. And uh, that would almost sound like a joke. It could make you laugh pretty easily. I don't know how much disbelief was in his laugh or, he just, or it just struck him funny. Uh, her laugh may have been different, uh, as we'll get to. Maybe it was sarcastic. Maybe it was more disbelieving. Uh, it doesn't say that Abraham disbelieved. It just said he laughed. Struck him funny somehow. Uh, maybe there was some disbelief there. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, that's why we go back and examine these things. Because Abraham was not perfect. Uh, he lied about Sarah being his wife. Or half lied, but it's still amounted to a lie. So he made his mistakes, just like we make mistakes, but he overcame his mistakes. And he served God with all his heart. And some of the mistakes here, like laughing, uh, when you're told you're still going to have a son, Abraham. Now, he'd been told sometime after he was 75 that that would happen. And Sarah would be a mother, and at 84, he uh, engendered Isaac uh, through Hagar, not Sarah. So here he is now, 99, and all of that's behind him now. And God says, now you're going to have a child. Now, he wound up having a lot of children, but a child was the point at that juncture. Now, let's weigh <clears throat> the both of them laughing in that sense against how long they waited and how faithful they were and how after they got done with their laugh, they still believed and it finally happened. So we have our ups and downs with faith and trust and we have our weak moments, even as Abraham did. 
So we don't need to be discouraged. We just need to be sure that if we stumble a bit, if we fall, uh, that we gather ourselves up, regather our focus, and go on to do what God wishes us to do as human beings. And that is to prepare to be the bride of Christ as part of the first fruits. And an end time work which still must be done that has not yet begun, but that will be before many more years go by. <coughs> anyway, he laughed. Verse 18, Abram, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He says, are we making a mistake here? Uh, is Ishmael the one that could get these blessings? Uh, that's the only way his mind at that point could try to grasp what he was being told. He knew he was beyond, and he knew Sarah was beyond. So he began to say, well, how could this be? Uh, so God said, Sarah will bear you a son in verse 19. And uh, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'll make him blessed and fruitful and multiplying, and there'll be 12 princes from him. He'll be a great nation. But my covenant will come through Isaac, whom your wife Sarah will bear. Now Ishmael has indeed become 12 different nations of the Arab world, and they are wild asses of men, as God said Ishmael would be. And they have in mind to kill all Israelites on earth today, and they're <clears throat> infiltrating the Israelite countries to try to kill us off. So these jealousies go, that started way back then between Ishmael and Isaac are still with us today. So anyway, he circumcised them all. And then in chapter 18, the Eternal appeared to him in the plains of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. Uh, so he saw them coming, and here is a characteristic of Abraham as well. He was a very hospitable man. Uh, he had guests coming, so he fetched uh, water and washed their feet, uh, gave them a place in the shade under the tree, and said he'd fetch a morsel of bread and comfort your hearts. So then he quickly had Sarah make three measures of fine meal and killed a calf, young and tender. That's more than a morsel. <laughs> he, he kind of understated it. I'll give you a morsel to eat. And then he fixed them a fine banquet of fresh beef and bread and so on, uh, along with butter and milk and the calf which he had done. So what does he tell us in the New Testament? That we're to be hospitable, that we're to be giving, that we're to be serving, that we're to be helpful. Uh, that's the way it will be in the kingdom of God. Everybody will be willing to help and strengthen and encourage and be hospitable to everyone else. And that makes for a peaceful society instead of everyone being greedy, grasping, and selfish as we are in our world today. You know, I don't want to live forever under today's circumstances, do you? In fact, there are days when I think I've almost about had enough already. Uh, just the way things are. Uh, I, I can't imagine living in a world, having never been around it, where there is total peace, happiness, security, uh, no tears, no sorrow. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine. But when I look at the creation around us here that God has made, uh, 
I know he's capable of that, just simply because of the things he has made, as Paul told us in Romans 1. So we can take hope uh, in seeing the creation of God, that he can indeed make things beautiful and wonderful, and that without Satan around, human nature can also have some changes made and be changed to spirit nature, and then things can be happy and secure and peaceful. But I have to take it on faith. What did Abraham do? God said, get away from your family, get away from everybody you know, go where I'm going to send you, and I'll take care of you there. He just had to go. Did God give him all the answers? He didn't even tell him where he was going. He says, oh, just go look for this place that I'm sending you to. Go, go find it. And there's a real vote of confidence. Well, he wanted to test Abraham. He wanted to check him out. He wanted to see if Abraham was indeed the faithful one that he could build a nation through and set up as an example to the rest of the world. That's, that's a big job. So he wanted to know. And that wasn't the last test he had. Anyway, he fed them, and then I, I believe that that was certainly Christ who was there that day. Uh, it says in verse 11, they were old and well stricken in age. And obviously she was past menopause, as again mentioned. Therefore, verse 12, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I'm really old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the eternal? Now keep that one in mind right there. Is anything too hard for the eternal? That's one of the most serious questions in the whole Bible right there. Is there anything? Can you think of anything too hard for God to do? He created the universe. He created the earth. He designed and created living human beings and animals and all kinds of living creatures and plants and everything on this earth. And he said he will change us from physical to spiritual, to spirit, to be in his family. Is that too hard to swallow? Is that too big? The world doesn't believe it. Christianity doesn't believe it. So-called Christianity. That we would become God. That's blasphemy to them. You know, maybe be sort of a something that sits on a cloud and plays a harp, but not God. Can't do that. Is anything too hard? Well, here they, he'd said to two dried up old people, you're going to have a baby. You're going to be renewed, refreshed, in one sense resurrected. And then she says, oh, I didn't laugh. <laughs> but he knew. She laughed within herself, but Christ knew. He says, no, you did laugh. Uh, verse 17, uh, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him. He had been observing uh, Abraham's father, grandfather, all the way back to Shem and to Noah. And then he had been observing uh, Abraham all these years. He says, I know him. 
that he will command his children. He'll take charge of his house. He won't have a bunch of rebels. Uh, I've seen his character. I've seen how he reacts under pressure. I know he'll have a good household and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Eternal to do justice and judgment, that the Eternal may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Now, we're the children of Abraham these many generations later, and God said that of Abraham's children there would be those who were faithful. Now, we understand that Israel would not always be faithful at all times. Even earlier here in this story, he had told Abraham that his children would depart from God and be taken into captivity for over 400 years before they would be released and taken to a promised land. And then we all understand how they murmured against Moses later on after coming out of there with a great deliverance and all had to die in the wilderness except for their children. But God knew that as people go... Abraham's children would be more faithful than anyone on earth to him, and that there would be a certain discipline there. Well, now, for that prophecy to be fulfilled down through the ages, when Israelites now do number as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens, are there those who are faithful? Are there there's those who will obey God in the same way that Abraham did? Here in the end time, God said, I can raise up stones, you know, but he doesn't want to. He wants to use the seed of Abraham. So he says here that this will occur. Now let's go back to Isaiah 51 for a moment here. Uh, We read this at the beginning of this series, and I've referred to it several times over the years. But let's understand the context of Isaiah 51. Here is an end-time prophecy about the church today, of the end-time people of God, uh, the spiritual Israelites above the physical Israelites. And we've come to see very clearly in the Scriptures that the prophecies not only apply to the physical nations of Israel, which are going to be taken and snared and go into captivity very shortly now, but that he dealt with spiritual Israel, the church, first. And he sent the church, after Herbert Armstrong died, into spiritual captivity, spiritual sword, and spiritual famine and pestilence. A famine not of bread, as Amos says, but of the Word of God. So we've seen the church spewed out of God's mouth. We've seen it become sputum and vomit in the earth. And it's all predicted. So, these horrible things that have occurred, God said would happen first to the church, and they have. Now the nation, physical Israel, is next in line to go into physical captivity and the sword and famine and pestilence. And that could start any time now when the economy collapses, as Zephaniah 1 says it will. And it is right on the verge of it right now. And in fact, many on the Internet are saying it could happen within the next 20 days between now and the inauguration. And others say it's a little further off, and you, you get opinions from different people. But there are a lot of people who recognize that as deeply as we are in debt, 
and the problems that we have with the monetary system that a great collapse is coming. So it's not just prophetic news now. There are a lot of people out there who grasp that we are in a world that is in deep, deep trouble uh, from an economic standpoint, and when it does occur, it's going to send the world into a, a tailspin, and especially the nations of Israel, as God says, which will be taken captive. But here in Isaiah 51, it is an end-time prophecy. It's a time when God is going to begin a renewal. Now notice what he says, chapter 51. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. Now who is that other than the church of God? And what's left of it at least. And there are still some who are trying to follow righteousness in spite of the Tkachas taking the church into Babylon and back into churchianity. So there are still those who are following after righteousness. So it has to be talking to those who are doing that, right? Are the Chinese following the righteousness of God? How about the Ethiopians? How about the, you name it. No, only those who have the truth. God gives the spirit to them that obey. And we must worship in spirit and in truth. So when he says follow after righteousness, it's the righteousness of God that people are following. So if we have the truth of God, and we're seeking to be righteous, then this is speaking to what's left over of the church. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, because Isaiah is an end-time prophecy. I mean, it ends with Christ being here on the earth in the millennium and people coming to worship before him and the Father uh, on a daily basis, even as uh, Zechariah 14 does. So this is, this is the end-time church. Look to the rock whence you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit where you were digged. So he tells those in the end who would be seeking righteousness to check out where they came from, okay? <clears throat> where was that? Look to Abraham your father, and to the Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. He was the only one of that generation that God called in the way that he did and made his covenant and his uh, promises to Abraham. Now, notice what he says after that. For the eternal shall comfort Zion. Now we know from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 that the church, Zion and Jerusalem are all the same. Spiritual Jerusalem, the church, who come before Christ and the Father, as it makes it very clear there. So in the Old Testament prophecies, Zion and Jerusalem are code words for the church, spiritual Israel as well as physical Israel in a different sense. So he's yet going to comfort the church, those who are following after righteousness. He will comfort all her waste places. Now remember, there are several scriptures that say Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations and no one dwell there and the cities of Judah would be desolate. So he's going to comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden. So the church is going to be in the wilderness and that wilderness is going to be changed so that it becomes like Eden, the garden of God. And her deserts like the garden of the eternal. So he tells her to go into the wilderness and dwell, even in Babylon there in Micah 4. 
He says, Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Now, we're here at a time when God is going to begin to blow the whole earth apart, not just the church. He's going to shake nations, mountains. The whole earth is going to be shaken. But he's going to take his people to Zion, a physical place, and they represent Zion as spiritually. He's going to take them there, and he's going to bless them and make the wilderness and the desert that he sends them to like Eden. Now, years ago, we thought that was in Petra in the Middle East. Uh, I've been there. I don't believe that's the spot anymore. I believe it's right near here, the true Zion. It is the joy of all the land and has the towers that you can count and is a beautiful place. So God is going to bring his people to a wilderness and desert area and make it like Eden so that everything is just like it was with Adam and Eve. Perfect conditions. Why? It's a prelude to the millennium. It's to be used as an example by the two witnesses to show the world how it can be if you will obey God. They won't. <laughs> they will deny the witness that is put before them. But you've got to have something to show them the who God is and what God can do. So he's going to gather his 10% remnant of faithful people that were scattered around the earth as a church, and he is going to bless them the way he did Adam and Eve. He says down in verse 5, My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arm shall judge the people. So it gives you an idea of the context here of when he's talking about when his righteousness is near. His righteousness isn't here yet, is it? He's not here yet. And you don't see much righteousness on the face of the earth. So, But it is near. It isn't very far away. It isn't very long. Uh, and his salvation is gone forth. My arm shall judge the people. Well, he hasn't started doing that yet. He started judging the church, because now is the day of salvation for us. But he hasn't started judging this whole world yet. The coast shall wait on me, and on my arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. The earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. So then he says, Hearken to me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear, don't, don't fear the reproach of men, or don't be afraid of their reviling, for they're going to be taken away. And he tells us to wake up, down in verse 9. So what he's saying here is he's going to renew the church the same way he renewed Adam and Eve, and he uses Abraham and Sarah as the example here of to whom we are to look. Well, what did he do with them? Was anything too hard for them? They were way both past any physical relationship that could engender a child. Way beyond that. And yet God caused them to, in a physical, normal manner, engender a child, and Isaac was born. He renewed them. He restored them. Now, he's using this, their example right here at the end that he is going to restore the church. Isaiah 35 says a desert will bloom like a rose. So God is going to cause a regeneration, a restoring, right here at the end. Peter thought it was when he, the 
early New Testament church first started. When the cloven fire came down on the day of Pentecost, they thought, or Peter thought, that that was the days of Joel and the day of the Lord was upon them. And that's what he said. And in a minor fulfillment, that was true. But there's a bigger one yet coming where the young men and the young ladies and so on will dream dreams and God is going to do signs and wonders and so on. So he says, look to Abraham and Sarah. He brought them back from the dead, physically, in that sense, in order to have children. Now, Sarah only had the one, but after that, Abraham went on married Keturah and had lots of kids and other concubines. I think he had six by Keturah and then a whole bunch more with the concubines. So when God restored him, he stayed that way. Uh, for decades and decades, until he died when he was 175 years old. Now, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I ask that again. Now, we read these scriptures in here in Isaiah, and it indicates the time is just before the earth is shaken. Just before the day of the Lord, he is going to renew at the Garden of Eden and make the conditions for the church in the place of safety like the Garden of Eden. Now, that's hard for people to swallow and to grasp and to understand because we weren't taught that before we had begun to understand the prophecies. Is it too hard for you to believe? Adam, I mean, Abraham and Sarah had trouble believing they were going to have a child. They both laughed at one time or another thought, oh, yeah, right, <laughs> sure. But then they believed it. You know what? Then it happened. Now, God says he's going to restore things. Uh, Acts 3 went on to explain right after Acts 2 that the time of restitution was coming, when all things would be restored. And Peter thought that was it, but it wasn't. They went on to have the New Testament church. They had troubles. They had trials. They finally fell apart after about 70 years, even as we fell apart about 70 years after God inspired Herbert Armstrong to begin teaching us the truth. It's the way it's been. Now, he says he's going to restore again <clears throat> just before the heavens and the earth vanish in smoke and the day of the Lord come upon us. Now, if you have trouble believing that and believing the scriptures that God puts out here, he says, hey, I point you no further than Abraham and Sarah. If I could restore them, I can do this. And he even asked the question right then, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, we can look back and say, well, yeah, God must have done that. It must have happened because Isaac was born and Jacob and Joseph and here we are. So it must have happened. But then we have trouble believing that God could react in our lives and do the same thing. He says there will be old men who can remember the former temple in the way that it was under Herbert Armstrong. And they'll see the latter temple built under the two witnesses, and they'll say this is far greater than that which came before. Now, Herbert Armstrong did a lot of wonderful things built a lot of beautiful buildings, and God called a lot of people through him. So he did do a marvelous work in that sense. 
But God says that which is just ahead of us as a final testimony to the world is going to be far greater. And there'll still be a few old men around who can see it. And that means to me it's got to happen pretty quick because almost everybody who was originally part of the Worldwide Church of God and saw it at its spiritual highest level are now very, very old. And most are dead. So, do we believe it? Why does he say that we're to look to our fathers down there in Malachi 4? Because God worked things back then that he's going to work, and in a greater way today than he did back then. Where is that scripture? It doesn't come to mind. Where it says the end time deliverance is going to make you forget Israel coming out of Egypt or Mitzrayim. But the Red Sea parting and so on will seem small compared to what God is going to do here at the end. God is going to make himself known to the whole world. They will reject him, but he's got to make himself known. They have to have a chance to see what God can do and reject it before he basically wipes the population of the earth out, except a hundred million that he will still be here when Christ returns to begin to judge and to teach in the millennium. Daniel makes it very clear it's only a hundred million out of seven billion that are left. That's pretty much total devastation in terms of numbers. So, let's learn... Excuse me, let's learn something from this lesson back here with Abraham and Sarah. It isn't just a, an ancient historical account. It's something that God tells us who are seeking righteousness now to look back to and to anticipate, not laugh, not ridicule, not have a sarcastic laugh, but to believe that God can do anything he sets his hand to do. Abraham was the father of who? The faithful. That means that he was more faithful than anyone, but those who came after him would also be faithful. And that's what Paul said there in Hebrews. He said, told the people there, you are to be faithful like all of those forefathers were faithful. So he told the early New Testament church that. And then Paul wrote that down, and God put it in the Bible, for those upon whom the ends of the earth have now come. So we are told to be faithful as Abraham was faithful, to believe the promises that he has given us here in the end time. So it is with a great deal of importance that we look back here to these ancient stories and realize God had a message here for us. So he was 99 years old, and they had their laugh. Uh, but he told them, within a year, you're going to have a baby. And she did. Now let's go on here. Uh, I had gotten up to where... Oh, we, we've got the story of Sodom and, and Gomorrah coming up here. 
And there's something in Abraham's character here that I think I'll point out to I'm not going to read all of this word by word. We went through this story oh, several years ago, word by word. But uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were the San Francisco of the day. Uh, they were the New York and the Miami of the day, or Charlotte, the Queen City. Uh, and it's known for its homosexuality. But Sodom and Gomorrah were almost totally perverted. God said, I'm going to wipe them out. Well, Abraham's uh, nephew Lot lived there. And uh, Abraham approached God and says, you're not going to really wipe all those people out, are you? Now, Abraham may have had, living in the society he was in, he had a concern and a compassion on people. And even though he knew they weren't obeying God, he didn't want to see them just blotted out. So we find within Abraham's thinking and reasoning capacity an attitude of compassion and concern for others. Just as he had put his own life in jeopardy in going after and rescuing Lot from his captors, uh, he was willing to put himself on the line with God here. And says, well, you know, do you have to destroy it? What if I find 50 people? that are righteous there. God said, oh, okay. And he went through this thing until he finally got it down to, what, ten, I think it was. And uh, they weren't to be found. So Lot and his family were there, and God sent two angels. And to show you how depraved they truly were, and they wanted the two men who came, the angels who had come to visit Lot, and to tell him to get out of there. And Lot even offered two virgin daughters that he still had left. And they didn't want them. They were so perverted. They wanted the men. Now, Lot had a bigger family there. It said these two didn't hadn't known a man or were, were still virgins, but he had sons-in-law. So he had other children there and sons, it says as well in the story. Uh, and they didn't pay any attention to Lot. So... Uh, Lot even offered those two daughters, and they didn't want them. And then the angel struck all those men blind. They couldn't even see. And that didn't even back them off. They were still groping for the door and trying to get hold of those two men, even when they couldn't see. Well, that's pretty nasty stuff. Pretty perverted. Anyway, God decided to wipe it out. But Abraham did try to intervene on the behalf of those people. And as we know the story, uh, Lot got out, his wife got turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back. And after all those warnings, she still couldn't divorce herself from the society she was living in. And when God tells us, get out of Babylon, don't be partakers of her sins and her plagues, how hard do we find it to divorce ourselves from the culture and the world that around us is, that is ungodly? We watch all kinds of sin on TV and on computers and wherever we find to watch it or go see it or whatever. Uh, God says, that's not the way to live. Get away from it. Don't look back to it. Uh, let's not be the way the world is. But anyway, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Then Abraham lied about uh, his sister. Half, she was his half-sister, but not his full sister. She was also his wife. 
And uh, even when Abimelech got upset about that, if you remember the story, uh, that he had been lied to, he was scared to death that he would have been uh, punished by God for touching another man's wife there. Uh, Abraham made up with him. Uh, they got along. And even when there was a, a contest over a well that Abraham's men had dug and Abimelech's men claimed it, uh, Abraham gave an offering and settled it with Abimelech and so on. So he was willing to uh, be fair, not to be greedy. Uh, the story also of uh, of Lot, when Lot wanted the best land, Abraham said, take your choice. He was not a greedy, selfish man. Now, God blessed him with lots of gold and silver and lots of animals, and he was a very, very wealthy man. Uh, but he was not a greedy man, and he was willing to say, okay, you, you have first pick. Go for it. And Lot took the choicest land, and Abraham took that which was not as good. So, uh, are there some characteristics back there with Abraham that we need to be thinking about and uh, and mimicking, doing as he did? Anyway, uh, chapter 21 at a set time, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age uh, at the set time which God had said. And they called his name Isaac. She named him Isaac because Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. <laughs> we laughed at first, but now I'm holding the baby. So let's remember our reaction when we were told all those years ago we were going to have a baby, and now here he is. They called him laughter throughout his entire life. He didn't laugh on the eighth day, though. He got circumcised. And Abraham was a hundred years old, verse 5, when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. So she says, <laughs> uh, it, it's all happy laughter now. And I only, I'm going to name him laughter. And every time Isaac's name comes up, We'll share this story throughout the rest of my life. And she had borne a son in her old age. So he grew and was weaned. Uh, and they had a great feast that day in verse 8. Uh, but Hagar was not happy. She had been mocking. And she said to Abraham in verse 10, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, as Sarah did, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. So this son Ishmael that she had claimed as hers, now suddenly was just Hagar's, and she had one born of her own womb. And this was very troubling and grievous and frustrating to Abraham, verse 10, because he loved Ishmael. Uh, he was 13 at that time. But God had said... And Isaac shall your seed be called. In verse 13, also the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is your seed. So Abraham rose up early and gave Hagar some bread and a bottle of water and sent her away because Sarah had said so. And then the story came that she was sitting there and put the kid away from her under a bush and she didn't want to watch him die. And then the angels came and... Uh, 
revived him and told her that he would be a great nation, reminded her. And Ishmael has become a great nation, but not the chosen people that came through Isaac, Jacob, and so on. Now we come to a real test. Chapter 22. came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Just like uh, Samuel had said to Eli, here I am, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready, what do you want? Anything you want? I'm here to do it. He had a ready mind, in other words. Ready to serve, ready to give, ready to do whatever he was told. Now, he'd had a lifetime at this point of God telling him to do things and then having to go do them. Or God saying things would happen and then having to wait decades for them to happen. So here God approaches him again, and Abraham might have thought, oh boy, now what? <laughs> After all that he'd been through. But his response was, here I am. How can I serve? What can I do? So God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Abraham didn't argue. He didn't fight. He was a faithful man, faithful to God. And he had been tried and tested all his life. And he had even had this son decades after he had been promised. And now he was grown up. And God said, go sacrifice him. I don't know what all raced through Abraham's mind at that point. How could God do this? Why would God do this? Is God really going to do this? But he had come to trust God. So that whatever God said, yes, sir, here am I. I'll do it. So he rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. He didn't even tell him which mountain, just like he had not told him which city, where he was headed. He just says, I'll, I'll point it out to you. You'll know at the time. So he traveled three days. Now, this had to have been working on him. I'm on my way to kill my son because God told me to. Did he equivocate? Did he back out? Did he stop and argue with God? No, he just traveled three days. On the third day, he saw the place far off and understood that was it. And Abraham said to his young men, You stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, maybe he'd figured out that God had an answer to this, because uh, it sounds like he included Isaac in coming back to them, or he didn't want to alarm them and just put it in general terms. Anyway, he took the burnt offering and laid it, or uh, the wood for the offering, and laid it on his son Isaac. Now you begin to see the parallel of Christ here, with Father sending his only son, and he carried his own crucifix. Here, Isaac carried his own wood for the fire that would burn him, that would kill him. And he took the fire in his hand, and a knife, and he went both of them together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, same as he had to God. I'm here to serve you, son. 
So he had an attitude of service and giving, both to God and to his son. He respected his son. said, here I am, what can I do for you? What, what can I say? And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This has been working on Isaac all this time, you know. I got dad here with me, we're going to do this burnt offering, and we got wood, we got fire, uh, where's the animal? I don't know whether he got a clue anywhere along the line or not, but but he was certainly perplexed about the situation. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together, kept walking. They came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order, stacked it so he could build a fire, good boy scout, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, Abraham was getting pretty well up there now. Uh, he'd been a hundred when Isaac was born, and now he was uh, a young lad, a young man. Uh, you think Isaac might have been able to whoop his old man? I would think so. Uh, and, and most kids today, if you were to tell them, uh, I'm going to tie you up now, and I'm going to lay you down there and set fire to you, uh, there would be some words spoken. Uh, there would be some action taken. There might be some fighting and some running done. Now, did he have command of his house? What did God say? He says, I know him. He will have command of his house. So when Abraham got the rope and told Isaac, put your hands down by your side, I'm going to tie you up now, Isaac obeyed. He didn't fight. He didn't rebel. Do we have command of our houses today? Or do we tell them to take the trash out and we get a fight? You know, <laughs> not even close. But Isaac must have understood at least somewhat the seriousness of the situation, especially when he started getting tied up. Uh, so he laid him down on the altar of the wood. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So he had him tied up, had him laid on the wood, had the fire beside him, and now he actually raised his hand to stab Isaac to death, or to cut his throat, whichever way he was going to do it. Normally, he cut the throat of an animal you were sacrificing. The angel of the eternal called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, probably very uh, vociferously at this point, here I am. <laughs> now what? I'm here. <clears throat> Had his attention. And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do you anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The ultimate sacrifice, that son he had waited for all that time. Even as our Father in heaven had a son whom he sent to be a sacrifice for us many, many years later. And he actually went through with it and killed his only begotten son. He killed God because his son was God. Now, God did not ask Abraham to do anything he would not ask us to do, right? God has said he will not lay anything on us that we cannot handle. Now, what happened to a lot of the prophets and the priests of the past? They were stoned. They were sawed asunder, even as... 
Paul rehearses there in Hebrews 11. God has put people through an awful lot of tests and trials. And he's going to put people through tests and trials here in the end time as well. One of the big tests that we have already seen is the church being blown apart and whether or not we would remain faithful to God and the true doctrine that had been given to us and move forward in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, even then, because he says many won't endure to the end. Will we? Well, we're being tested to see, and things are about to get a whole lot worse. They'll try us to kill us, just as Abraham was told to kill his son. So Abraham looked up, and God did provide a ram, just like he had told Isaac. There was one hooked in the uh, in the brush on his horns, probably a desert bighorn like we see up here on these cliffs. And he offered him for a burnt offering. But God had to know and know that he knew that Abraham would be faithful no matter what. He says, now I know that you fear God and you're willing to give anything. So then Sarah was 127 years old and she died. Now, Abraham was 10 years older than her. I'm in chapter 23 now. Uh, so he was 137 when she died. <clears throat> and he mourned, buried her in the uh, land of Mamre, the cave of Machpelah, uh, bought the field. I think we'll discover that fairly soon now, where she is buried, in the land of Canaan. In chapter 24, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Eternal had blessed Abraham in all things. Uh, then he was to go... Uh, I'm about out of time here. We won't get down to quite the end of this story, I guess. Well, let's, let's, let's just summarize and get on through here. Uh, Abraham was concerned because his son Isaac was to be the father of many nations. So he wanted to be sure that, that uh, Isaac had a good wife. So he didn't want just any woman from the Canaanites there to marry Isaac. So he sent his trusted servant down to his kinfolk to try to find a wife. <clears throat> and uh, the guy prayed about it. He was concerned. He thought he'd been, get, you know, to, to go find a wife for your master's son, and he knew the story. <laughs> Abraham had certainly told him the story over the years of the promises that God had made to him concerning Isaac. So he prayed, and then Rebecca showed up, and she immediately began to be the kind of woman that you would be looking for. She saw the servant standing there and uh, said, Hey, I'll get you some water. And then she ran and fetched water for his camels. How many young gals do you know today that would have that kind of an attitude? This is our well, go away. Or get it yourself, buster, who do you think you are? Uh, be the modern American girl. <laughs> We're not taught to serve and to give by families much anymore. But she obviously had high character and had been raised right. So she was willing to do whatever she could for this stranger. And uh, then, 
he gave her a, an earring and a couple of bracelets, gold ones, and then she ran to tell her parents that this man was there and that he needed a place to stay. So her brother came out and uh, said, yeah, we got room for you. We got food for your camels. We'll take care of you. What a hospitable family. So God tells us in the New Testament that we're to be hospitable. Well, here you have Abraham, his servant, and the family of the woman who would become Isaac's wife and become the mother uh, of Israel. He told him, the family, when he got there, uh, no, let's don't eat yet. i got a story to tell you. So then he told him all about Abraham and how he had been sent and what he was looking for and how pleased he was that uh, Rebecca had had such a wonderful attitude and seemed to be an answer to prayer. And she was. So then he gave them uh, all kinds of gifts and so on. And uh, so they talked, and then he stayed the night, and the next day he says, I'm ready to go back to Abraham. I need to get back and tell him the good news that I found a wife for Isaac. And they says, well, can you at least give us ten days to say our goodbyes and have a party and, you know, and, and uh, get her ready for the trip? And he says, oh, he says, I need to go. Uh, now, here was Rebecca going to marry a man she'd never met, didn't know of until this servant showed up probably. And... Uh, just by the servant's attitude. Now, did Abraham work with those around him so that the servant had the right kind of an attitude? He didn't have any sullen, do-it-yourself, uh, pay-me-or-I-won't-work attitude. Uh, he was willing to go and help and do whatever he could of a ready mind. And they said, well, if you got to go that quick, I guess you got to go. Uh, can we at least ask Rebecca what she wants? And uh, he said, you want to go with this man? She says, all right, I'll go. Verse 58, they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. And they sent her away, Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they gave her their blessing. says, go have a great life, <laughs> more or less. Uh, you know, you're, you're moving away from home. So then Isaac was in the field, and she said, Who is that? And he says, Well, that's the guy you're going to marry. So she got down off the camel and covered her face and uh, had a submissive, ready-to-serve attitude. So through Abraham, God provided Isaac, uh, a wife, a good wife. And you can't always be guaranteed that, can you? You think you found a good wife, but sometimes it doesn't turn out that way. A woman thinks she's found a good husband, and it doesn't turn out that way. Well, this one worked out. So then in chapter 25, Then again Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him six. Now, when God restores, remember Isaiah 51, where he says he's going to make it as Eden? When he restores the church and uses it as an example of a mini-millennium, uh, just as the earth is going to be shaken and torn and the day of the Lord is coming, those people are going to continue in that until Christ returns and they're changed, and then the whole earth is going to be made millennial. So he's going to start with a small resurrection or restitution 
of the way things were. And then they will stay that way. Now that story is also seen here. And that God did not just restore Abraham and Sarah for one night so that a child could be conceived. When he restored them, when he resurrected Abraham, if you will, uh, it stayed that way. It wasn't just a short phenomenon. So when Sarah died and his son had been married, he said, well, I think I'll get married too. So he found Keturah, and then he had a whole bunch more kids through her, and those were the children of Keturah, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but under the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived eastward into the east country. So he had uh, six children by Keturah after Sarah, and no telling how many by his concubines. I've never made too much of that story, except that he continued to be able to engender children. But when you tie it with the end-time prophecies of how God is going to restore things to the church, and they're going to stay restored in a place of security and safety for his people, then this story makes more sense. But Abraham was restored, and he stayed that way. And he's going to restore his church now that it's been scattered. And a 10% remnant is going to gather to do to build the temple, to build Jerusalem, and to prepare the way. And then the two witnesses, when the abomination is set up in the temple, will begin to preach. But they can point to Zion, where everybody's going to gather, and it says it over and over. It doesn't say Peter anywhere. It says to Zion over and over again. They'll be able to point to Zion and say, there are the people of God. And they have blessings like Abraham, I mean like Adam and Eve had, because they're obeying God. So you who seek righteousness need to look to the pit and the hole from whence you were digged. Look to Abraham. Look to Sarah. See the character they had, the faithfulness, the obedience to God, and the trust over a long period of time while they lived in what we would now call a Christian manner. Hospitable, giving, helping, serving, saving from captivity, making peace with relatives, making peace with enemies. They exhibited the character of God. And God restored them and blessed them after they waited for years and years. Now, we've been waiting quite some time since God blew the church apart. And we wonder, how long, O oh Lord? Don't you think Abraham and Sarah thought the same thing. You told us we're going to have one. You told us back when Abraham was 76, 7, 8 years old. Then we tried. He was able to have Ishmael, but I haven't had a baby. Then when he was 99 and she was 90, they waited a long time. Past hope. Well, look at how bad this church is scattered now and how many people are falling away and dying in what's left. And out of those, God said he's from around the world going to gather 10% to do the end time work and to preach the gospel around the world as a witness and then the end shall come. Obviously, it has not been done yet because the end hasn't come. And those who are going to preach it aren't even on the scene yet. But it's got to happen soon because he says there'll be old men who saw the former temple under Herbert Armstrong 
at its height, at its best, which is probably the 50s and 60s, before it began to deteriorate spiritually. There aren't too many around now. All the old evangelists are dead, nearly all of them. So it can't be long until God turns it around. Can we wait that long? Can we be faithful? Can we be patient? Can we be obedient? Can we say, here am I? Brethren, if you'll take your hymnals, turn to page number 10, page number